America. We are endowed by our creator with certain unalienable rights, life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness. At Grand Canyon University, we believe in equal opportunity, and the American dream starts with purpose. To serve others in ways that promote human flourishing and create a ripple effect of transformation for generations to come, find your purpose at Grand Canyon University. Private, Christian, affordable. Visit gcu.edu. Welcome to 500 Greatest Songs, a podcast based on Rolling Stone's hugely popular, influential, and sometimes controversial list. I'm Brittany Spanos. And I'm Rob Sheffield. We're here to shed light on the greatest songs ever made and discover what makes them so great. From classics like Fleetwood Mac's Dreams to The Ronettes' Be My Baby, and modern day classics like The Killer's Mr. Brightside. Listen to Rolling Stone's 500 Greatest Songs on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. I'm Saleha Mosin, and I've covered economic policy for years and reported on how it impacts people across the United States. In 2016, I saw how voters were leaning towards Trump and how so many Americans felt misunderstood by Washington. So I started The Big Take D.C. We dig into how money, politics, and power shape government and the consequences for voters. With new episodes every Thursday, you can listen to The Big Take D.C. on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Welcome, welcome, welcome back to the Bob Lefseth Podcast. My guest today is truly legendary, the Dean of Engineers, Al Schmidt. Wow, thank you. Thank you for having me. Okay. Happy to be here. What work are you most proud of? Well, well, I think all the records I did with Mancini. Okay. uh, A lot of the stuff I did with um, Diana Krall. Great. Great. Some great albums with uh, Streisand, um, Steely Dan, Toto. I mean, it goes on. There's so many of them. So I know. My, it's like, my, hey, we can look up. Okay. Some but, of the great jazz records, you know, Bill Evans and and uh, Jerry Mulligan, Chet Baker, those kind of things. Yeah, those. I'm very okay, proud let's of. drill down to literally one of my, if not my favorite record of all time, which is Jackson Brown, Late for the Sky. Right. You started working with Jackson on his second album. Right, for every man. Right. How did that come together? Well, what happened was he was working with another engineer, and they were having problems getting a mix on it. And he called me, and uh, I had just finished, I think, the uh, Dave Mason album, Alone Together. Yeah, we'll get to that, too. Yeah, but he called me and and said, you know, would I give it a shot? And he knew you from Alone Together. Yes. Okay. So, uh, yeah, so... We got along really well. I mixed the record. It came out really nice and came out. So then when he was getting ready to do Late for the Sky, he called me and asked if I would co-produce it with him. And I said, sure. So that was it. Okay, so you're both a producer and an engineer. Yeah. Explain the difference of your roles in those capacities. Wow. Well, a real producer is... The guy that um, hires the contractor, who hires the musicians, um, looks for the material. If the artist is not a songwriter, trying to find songs for him. Fortunately, with Jackson, he wrote all his own stuff. Right. Um, 
a producer oversees everything, makes sure that uh, everybody's on time and, you know, budgets are being taken care of and, and, uh, and kind of is a director on a film similar to that. An engineer is the guy that captures all the sounds, the vocals, the guitars, the drums. He's the guy that's got to get it and make it sound good and make it sound very musical and, and pleasant to the ears, hopefully. Okay, but on a record, because there are a number of records you were a producer, especially in the 70s, what roles did you perform on those albums that were different from being an engineer? When, when I was just a producer in the, uh, I guess it was the mid-60s on, um, my job then was to, f I had 11 artists, um, and they went, they Sam Cooke, uh, Hugo Montenegro, um, the Women Folk, Glenn Yarborough. Um, I, I just went on and on. Right. Uh, so my job is to put, put in budgets for each album. Back then, most artists did two albums a year, not like today. Right. You know. So I had to put in uh, budgets for the artists, for the albums. I had the, the artists that didn't write material, I had to find material for. So every Monday was Publishers Day to all the – Publishers well, well let's in. go back just a couple of steps. You said you had 11 acts. How did you yeah. end up with 11 acts? Um, RCA said, you take care of these guys. <laughs> okay, so at the time, you were on staff at RCA. Yeah, I was a staff producer. When? How, what was your tenure at uh, RCA? From when to when? As a staff producer? Yeah. Well, I think I became a staff producer in 1961. And I was there until uh, I left, I think, 66, 7. Okay, now in that era, seven from years. what I know, to touch the board, you had to be a union guy, right? Absolutely. So and that's you, why when I became a producer, I couldn't touch the board anymore. And when I did, I'd get called up on a carpet and they would say, don't do that anymore. And Okay. We, you know. So you were at RCA from like 61 to the late 60s. As a producer. As a producer. Right. But you were literally working for them. Yes. Okay. For RCA. After that, you went independent, right? Mm -hmm. Okay. Yes. And then before that, were you independent? Um, yes. Okay. So what made you decide to go to work for RCA? Actually, before that, I was not independent. Okay. I had worked for Radio Recorders, which was a recording studio. Right. That's how I got involved with Henry Mancini. Okay. And uh and the Peter Gunn record and uh and I wound up then doing all of Hank's things, uh recordings, and that's when RCA opened their studio, they hired me. I was the first hire to work in the new studios at RCA and it was on the corner of Sunset and Vine. Right. It was there a long time, the seventies, eighties for the NBC for building. Right. right. Yeah. And it was when I was working there. It was uh, they had the national news at night or the late news at night, and uh, you bet your life. Oh, so, really? And Groucho, I would see Groucho almost every day down in the hallways, and every time he'd go by, he'd mumble something <laughs> and have me laughing all the yeah, time. Yeah, the magic word of the day. Mm -hmm. um, so, but at the time, RCA was headquartered in New York, right? Yes. Okay. That was the main. Okay, so that you were when you came on as a producer. You were in the West Coast. Was there? You were the first producer on the West Coast. No, I was the first engineer they hired on the West Coast. Okay. Yeah, I wasn't producing at that point. I was just okay. engineering. So you you worked 
for RCA as an engineer yes. for a salary, I presume. Right. And then once you became a producer, you couldn't touch the board anymore. Right, exactly. Okay, how long did you work for them before you became a producer? Uh, 58, probably uh, b- 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 two, two and a half years, maybe. And what caused the switch? Um, what caused the switch was people would ask for me on dates all the time uh, as the engineer, right. and I'd be the engineer, and they'd come in, the producer committee be on the phone for three hours. <laughs> right, right. And I was doing all the work. Talking to the musicians, and we knew everybody. And if you make a mistake, you know, we're on the honor system. Raise your hand. You know, this guy's talking to a hooker or a, or a bookie or something on the phone. <laughs> so he's not paying attention to what's going on here. So, and they were getting all the credit and everything. And I thought, oh. so I went to my boss. Who, I got, uh, who was your boss? My boss at that time was Steve Schultz. Okay. And Steve is the guy that signed. Elvis Presley to RCA. Oh, really? Oh, yeah. Yeah, he was a major guy at, at RCA. And now, was he in New York or L.A.? He was uh, part of the time New York, part of the time okay. L.A. At this particular time, he was in L.A. So I went and I talked to him. I had gotten an offer from Bill Putnam, who owned the studio. Um, he was getting ready to kind of slow down, I guess, and he was going to hire me from RCA over to United, and uh, and so it would add a lot more money than I was making. So I told Steve that I wanted to be a producer, and and uh, if if I didn't get a promotion, I was going to leave. Right. So we worked out a deal that okay, they would do that, but I have to bring in an engineer and break him in on all the Mancini dates, you know, because he was the Top guy then, and right. you know, and um, so I said, fine. So there was a guy at Radio Recorders that I knew, Jim Malloy, who later on became a big time producer in country music, and won Grammys, and did the Pink Panther record, and quite a few other things. But but he had a lot of talent, and nothing was going on with him there, and and I liked him, so I talked him into coming over, and then on all the early charade and those things. Mancini things that he did. I sat next to him and showed him how I set up and what I did, and then then I was able to uh, move into doing just producing, and uh, and I got away from it. Okay, anymore. okay. No one could be as good as you, but how long did it take to get Malloy up to uh, the right level? Uh, I was with maybe three big sessions. Oh, really? Pretty he, quickly. Yeah, it was pretty quick. He was he's really good. Yeah. Okay, so now you're going to be a producer. Okay, <laughs> you're not going to touch the board anymore. Right. Tell us how you end up with the eleven acts. Well, they give they wind up giving me acts. You know that that's the first thing. Um, the first record I made that I produced was by H H B Barnum, uh, and we did a thing called "Take Me Out to the Ball Game," and we did a <laughs> funky version of that. It was just the start of the season. We we put that out. Then. Uh, then I just wound up getting um, artists given to me, you know, like um, I went to dinner one night with Steve Schultz and, 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 and my, the big boss from New York, Jody Imperio and, and Eddie Fisher. Now, next thing I know, I'm producing Eddie Fisher. <laughs> so, you know, I was, it's not my kind of thing that, not I wouldn't go out and normally buy an Eddie Fisher record. Uh, 
But this is it. So I just went, went about trying to make the best record I could okay, did, with Eddie Fisher. Okay. So did they have you signing any acts? I could. And and uh, I did. I turned one or two small acts for small percentages. But nothing ever happened. Okay. So you're working for RCA. You're totally on salary? Totally on salary, so no if points. The, if the, okay, so the record hits, you're not getting any more money. Yeah, yeah, you do. You get, you can make five thousand dollar bonus at the <laughs> end of the year, and I made that every year. So I went from making as an engineer because you got overtime, right, right, forty seven thousand a year, average, which was a lot of money, very, very good, to seventeen thousand five hundred salary, and five thousand as a bonus, so twenty two five. And so what, was, I the, was, what was, was the dream there? The dream was to be a producer because they were the guys that were getting all the glory stuff. You know, you think, oh, yeah, that's producers. They got all the, uh, the authority. They hired, a, you know, I don't know, if, if, whatever. It was, it, was a, uh, it was something I always wanted to do. And when I got into it, I wasn't sure <laughs> that when I was doing it that this was really what I wanted to do. And that, that story evolves a little bit. Oh, okay, so you're now the producer. To what degree, you know, over the last 50 years, things have varied. There's been the era of the producer. There's been the era of the engineer producer. Right. So when you were the producer, other than making sure that your guy was getting the sound right and you're in the studio, what kind of input would you give? Well, I was the guy that hired the, uh, the right. arranger. You know, Nelson, I hired Nelson Riddle for the first uh, <laughs> date. Um, I found a song for Eddie after going through maybe 2,000 songs. I found one I thought that might be able to work for him, and we did it. It came out, and uh, it uh, it made the top 20 uh, in, in uh, singles, uh, and it kind of brought him back a little and, and, and helped that way. Um, what do you do? You, 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 you have an artist. Right. So if he writes songs and you figure out – all right, let's hear the songs. You figure out which the best songs are and which ones you want to do. Um, if he doesn't write, then you have to look for material for him and find songs that that he could do. Right, right. You know? um, well, so, the reason I ask is being in the studio myself, a fraction of the average yeah. engineer, never mind yourself, I find most engineers are relatively passive They'll do what the whatever the act says, and I find that the producer is the person who tends to say, "Whoa, that doesn't work." Yeah. Whoa, we that has to change. Is that accurate? Yeah, that's very accurate. Um, you know, if I'm the engineer and there's a, a an artist here and a producer next to me, David Foster or whatever, he's the boss. You know, it's like a director of a film. The producer right. is the boss. So he wants me to do something. I can explain why I don't think it's a good idea, but if he insists, I do it, you know. Okay. But I want him in front. Okay, so you're producing in the early 60s. Right. Uh, is everybody cutting an album or you doing just singles or what? It's, it's a little of both, mostly albums, but uh, almost every artist did two albums a year. Right. You know, so, uh, yeah, it was when you have a lot of artists. Hugo Montenegro I had at that time. Um, God. 
Well, Hugo Montenegro did the good, bad, and the ugly, right? That's right. Was right. that your record? No, I did right right after that. Okay. I, I worked with him. Okay. So you're working with those acts. How much pressure do you get from New York City to have a hit? Um, you, you get you get pressure from everybody to have a hit, including yourself. You know, you, you, this is what you're striving for. You know, especially with like someone like Eddie Fisher, who had not had a record in a while, hadn't had done anything or whatever, or went through a bad something. You you want to get something that will get played on the top 40 radio stations. And you so you're trying to find something that's commercial, maybe sing-along kind of thing. And, and, and then, of course, to hire somebody like Nelson Riddle to do the arrangement, and, and he was quite a big help on it. Uh, yeah, it's, it's not, not well, easy. Okay, so, so tell me about a Monday being publishing day. I yeah Monday would be publishing day. I'd uh, I'd come in. Uh, I'd see four or five publishers that day. They'd come over. I had a turntable there, and uh, they would bring me songs. I'd put them on and and listen. And, you know, maybe make a note on something that I'd put a hold on the song for a, an artist that I was thinking about. Uh, so that would be it, and then they'd be there. Half hour, forty minutes, and the next guy'd show up, and I'd do that. And that's the, but you know, as someone who's listening to material, that's usually a very tedious process. It is, it and, is, and the hit to shit ratio is very low. It, 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 yes. There's a lot of, uh, a lot of crap, right? You know, and that's that's the thing. Uh, trying trying to get through things. Now today, demos tend to be highly produced. What were the demos like back then? Demos were real rough. Sometime a demo would just be voice and piano or guitar and, and, and voice. Uh, or sometimes uh, just a small rhythm section done in a little funking studio. That's that's pretty much how the demos were. So they only started demos only started getting better when some of the demos were starting to become hits. Right. Do you remember any demos that became hits? Oh, I can't remember offhand. No, I mean I remember yeah. okay, but a lot of things. You know, the other thing is sometimes today with very produced demos. Then they redo and it's just not as good as the demo. Absolutely. Oh, that, and a lot of occasions. Okay, so yeah. let, let's go back. Okay. Sure. How often would you listen on Monday and go, "Man, that's a hit." Yeah. Well, I bet I listened to uh, five hundred songs for Eddie Fisher before I found the one song that I thought had a chance to be a hit. So I called Eddie up right away. Drove up to his house, played him. He, yeah, okay. Then uh, I called Nelson Riddle, uh, find out when he was available, booked the studio, uh, let Nelson have his whatever he wanted on the date, and that was it. We went in, we cut two songs, and. Uh, well, how did you know? What was it about the tr the song that you knew would be the right one? It was at a time when these sing along songs were were becoming popular. You know. Um, and people that, you know, you could sing along with it and uh, there'd be this singer and then the choir would come in or the background voices. Um, and it had that feel to it, you know. It was just kind of, a, it was called games that people play. Right. And uh, Okay, when you're in the studio and you're working, do you know when something's a hit? Um, yeah, yeah. I, well, you know with... Yeah, you say, okay, this is a hit, and then it is. 
uh, then you're right 100% of the time on that particular. But there are other times when, I mean, I made a record with um, Dr. John. Tommy LaPuma produced right. it. Uh, keep the music simple. It was a single. We did the album and all, but, right. but this was a keep the music simple. And it, we all thought it was a smash. Went out there and died. Just nothing. This is when it was on Atlantic. You were working. No, no, uh, no. It was uh, Warner Brothers. Okay, because yeah. I find there's a very thin layer of stuff that's like an eleven. We go this you and you know. Yeah. And then below that, you can right. be surprised. But there's right. a certain level. Okay, so you're working with Eddie Fisher. Who else are you working with in the early sixties? You him and oh, God. Hugo Montenegro. Hugo, I did a, an album with him called Russian Grandeur, where we did all the great Russian. Uh, composers on an album, uh, the uh, Limelighters. I was working with the Limelighters. That was kind of fun. They Ken Cragen, yeah, the manager. Right? yeah, he was their manager. Ken, who later managed uh, Benson. Exactly. Yeah. So, okay, you're cutting an album at that point in time. Right. How long does it take to cut an album? Back then, very short period of time because we didn't have all the things that we have today the tuning and all those other things so you captured a performance we would always get a, in a three hour session we'd get two or three songs done in a three hour session and what was the equipment like then the equipment was great uh, we were going to tape obviously right. and it was becoming you know multi-layered tape right. by then we were up to 24 track or something uh so we, we had plenty of that. Uh, you would do three songs or four in a three-hour date, and everything was done at the same time. So there was no overdubs back then. It was all done live. And what you got, you know, was, whether it was Elvis, that's what you got. Uh, did you work with Elvis ever? I did on his first record, Out of the Service, G.I. Blues. What was that like? That was amazing. He was really cool. Tell me. Well— yeah, he was great. It's the first time in the studio that I ever worked like on one artist twelve hours straight. Okay. Where we had food sent in and we didn't go out, we didn't do that. And he was nice. It was a lot of fun, a lot of joking around. My assistant, who collected uh Turquoise uh, jewelry, uh Elvis had a uh, a bracelet, Turquoise. And my assistant said, God, that's a beautiful bracelet. He said, my assistant said, yeah, I collect that. And he said, boy, that's really a nice one. Elvis took it off and gave it to me. <laughs> so I said, Elvis. Yeah, I said, about the car in the garage. Because <laughs> <laughs> he had a Rolls Royce. Right. <laughs> And he laughed. We all laughed and all. But he gave him the bracelet. And well, now, is he the type of guy, some people like that who don't write their own material, the singers, they don't really show up until everything's arranged. Was he the guy who was uh, in the studio all day? He was there all day, all day. He loved hanging out with the guys. He loved hanging out with the singers, you know, the musicians. He he was a fun guy to be around. And, and back then, he was just out of the service. He was in great shape and, and you know, great sense of humor and, Life was great for him. And how uh, how much input did he have into the recordings? Quite a bit. Oh, yeah. really? Oh, yeah, he, quite a bit. What would he in say? A sense, well, in the sense that the, the tempos, made sure the tempos were right uh, for him. Um, yeah, he would, he'd would. he have input, not 100% him, but yeah. And he would, that 
that was the other thing. They would all work together on things and, you know, hey, what if we did this or what if we, you know. And as I said, we were doing usually four songs in three hours. Here I am in the studio, 12 hours, and we may get one or two things done, you know, but it and, was Elvis. And are you, is he using his band? Or, yeah, 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 it's his guys, yeah. Okay, so in the 60s, prior to the Beatles hitting, any other, you work with Eddie Fisher, you had a hit with him, any other memorable experiences? Oh, God. Yeah, as a producer or yeah. as an engineer? As a, as a producer. Yeah, I did uh, I did a great album with Paul Horn and Lalo Schifrin called Jazz Suite on the Mass Text, which won two Grammys. Uh, we did the Catholic Mass in jazz form. And and that was, we we got put down on that at first. And there's a, a priest in New York, Father O'Connor, who is called the jazz priest. And we got him to write the liner notes. And when we got that done, yeah, he did. He heard it and he wrote the liner notes. And yeah, as I think Lalo, yeah, Lalo won a Grammy and so did Paul. And so was Jefferson Airplane your first rock act? Yeah, that was my first real rock act. I, I, I produced a group called the Astronauts. Right. And had some moderate hits with Yeah, them. what was the hit of the Astronauts? Uh, Baja. Right. Right. Uh, I did them, and then I did a group called the Liverpool Five, British group from Liverpool. Right. The RCA didn't have a, a British act at that time. Right. So I, we signed the five guys, and they were really good, but they just nothing ever happened. Okay, so Jefferson Airplane, you make the first Jefferson Airplane with Sidney Anderson as opposed to uh, – Yeah, I didn't like, do that one. Oh, you didn't? No, no. Who did that one? That, I think, Dave Hassinger. Okay. When I they sent me up to see the group uh, when I was a staff producer at RCA, and so all this was going on in San Francisco, yeah, right? And I get a call to go up to San Francisco to see this group. They're playing at a club. They've already made the first album. No, no, okay, nothing. They haven't even been signed. So I go up and I see them at at this club and line around the block. I go and listen. Man, this stuff sounded great. So okay, I, so, so really, before, you thought it was not rough. It was good. I thought it was good, and yeah. I thought that, yeah, this is, hey, we we, we need a, a, a group from San Francisco because, you know, Moby Grape was going to Columbia right. and all this. Um, just just and, to be clear, you started off, you had a lot of success in the jazz world. Right. What was your viewpoint of rock music? Did you like it or you said this is business? No, I, I did like it. I liked it, and, and certain uh, – Certain aspects of it I loved, you know, and some of the old great R&B things uh, that, you know, race records, which is what I grew up on. Right. Uh, yeah, so I was into that kind of thing. And so you were a Beatles fan? The first time I heard the Beatles, I was I, I thought, uh, I want to hold your hand. Right, right. Uh, okay, you know. When I heard Sgt. Pepper, <laughs> it killed me. Right. One of the great ones. And all their albums. You know, Jeff Emmerich was the engineer right. of those and, and did an amazing Was he job. a friend of yours? Yes, he was. And, and uh, yeah, I miss him. He yeah, was very sad. wonderful, nice man. Right. Yeah. And uh, so you go up to San Francisco and you hear the band and you, yeah. you, you're thumbs up. Right. Then what happens? So RCA signs them. So they work out a deal and they come in and 
someone produces the first album. Just so I know, at that particular time, they had to record in the union studio, right? Right. Okay. Yeah. Right. So they... Uh, someone else started to produce a record. Yeah. I think that manager or somebody right. was in there at that time uh, produced a record. It was called uh, Jefferson Airplane Takes Off. Right. And it was with Signe right. in it. And then something, I don't know what happened, but she left the band. Right. I have no idea why. And and Grace came in, right? And Spencer, I think at that time okay. too, but I'm not sure. Um, and that was it, and it didn't do much. Then surrealistic pillow. Okay, well you're the, you did that. No, you didn't do no, that either. I didn't do that either. Who did that? That was um, Rick Gerard was okay. the producer, um, and uh, and they hated that record because the echo. They hated the way it was recorded with the echo and everything, and it's just you know, they so they didn't want anything to do with right with Rick, Rick at that point right because of that. So they um, at they, the time, do they have to use someone who works for RCA? Not necessarily. Okay, they would have to use an RCA engineer. engineer right, right. So anyway, so I I'm assigned to it. And now I am, I'm doing Eddie Fisher overdubs in the afternoon from 2 to 5. At 5 o'clock, I quit with Eddie. I go up to my office. I meditate. For, oh, really? For an hour. Okay. I wind up. I have a little bite to eat. I go back down. 8 o'clock, Jefferson Airplane come in. And they just trail in, you know, and it's, it's and it goes on. We, we work from 8 till maybe 11. And then all of a sudden, we, we get visitors start showing up, and we get Janis Joplin hangs out, and uh, so everybody, Jean Luc Godard. Oh, really? The, you know, I mean, it was some heavy duty people. Right. Rip Torn okay. and his wife. You know, his wife was who I can't. Geraldine remember. Fitzgerald. Yes, right. She would sit knitting, and <laughs> I swear, you know, and we're doing acid rock music. Um, so it got to be 11 o'clock, you know, David Crosby would show up, and, and then it was all drugs until 3 in the morning. So this went on for a while, and, and it was very, very slow. I can imagine, I and was, you're burning up some money. And we're burning up the money, but because it's RCA Studios, it's not like we're using a outside. Right. You know, so so that cuts it back a lot. And, and yeah, we were... Um, so anyway, so we're into this a few months, and and I, I'm I'm starting to uh, kill myself, in the sense that I get home, get a couple hours sleep, get up, come to the office. Uh, I had other acts that I was <laughs> right. working with and trying to do budgets, so I called my boss Ernie Alshuler on the phone in New York, and uh, and I said Ernie. Uh, I can't do this anymore. I said, uh, you know, I'm killing myself. I said, you know, I'm working with Eddie Fisher in the afternoon and Jefferson Airplane at night. Don't get out of here till 3, 4 in the morning by the time I get home. I'm back in looking for songs, you know. And uh, I said, I, I just can't do it anymore. He said, gee, how truck drivers do it. Wow. And I said, really, Ernie? He said, yeah. I said, well, get yourself a couple of truck drivers because... <laughs> Because I quit, and I turned, I went down 
put in my notice, two weeks' notice, and quit. So I went home after two weeks, and I didn't know what I was going to do. Wait, wait, well, but you're in the middle of, uh, you know, after bathing at Baxter's. Right, right. And now they're on their own in the studio. Right. All right, okay. So I get a call from the manager of the Jefferson Airplane. Al, we're having a lot of trouble. They're trying to stick us. We don't want these people. They said we could hire an outside producer and give them points. Would you be interested? I said, absolutely. <laughs> wait, 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 just a little bit. You quit. And obviously it takes like a little while to decompress. What was the plan? There was no plan. When I quit, yeah. none. That was it. What did I do? Oh, my God, I'm home. Now I'm home. I have a family. Right. And I'm home. And I'm not working. There's no check coming. What the? What? What? <laughs> Are you crazy? But it worked out, you know, and I'm now I was then I was trying to figure out, okay, now this is I got to have a plan on how I get some work. Right. And I was getting that going when I got the call from Bill Thompson, who right. was the manager of the airplane at the time. So I would remember I was making 22.5, right? Right. With the bonus. Right. So I do, uh, after bathing at Baxter's, we finally get it done. After okay, just so I know. Who makes the deal? You make the deal? A no, lawyer attorney, makes the deal? A lawyer. Okay, so yeah. you're savvy from Al, day one. Al Schlesinger. Okay. My attorney, great guy. So How many uh, points do they give you? Well, they start out low, but then it went up. And we okay. negotiated, and it went up. I was getting around five. Okay. Not bad. Not bad at all. Well, so my first royalty check is almost $50,000. <laughs> As compared to working a whole year for 23, uh, 22, 5. Okay, how long does it take you to finish after bathing at Baxter's? That album took five and a half months. And was there any pressure to speed it up? Um, no, not at that point. Do you have any they, they, they wanted, they, they, they would call all the time and ask how it's going and what's going on, what does it look like. And and we, I sent, she did a single while we were doing that, called Two Heads, I think. And uh, so they released a single. Right. So there was something out there. But that was it. There now, was, uh, Saturday afternoon, Won't You Try, was that always one song or were yeah. they joined together? No, it was joined together. Okay. Welcome to 500 Greatest Songs, a podcast based on Rolling Stone's hugely popular, influential, and sometimes controversial list. I'm Brittany Spanos. And I'm Rob Sheffield. We're here to shed light on the greatest songs ever made and discover what makes them so great. Every week, we'll pick a new song from the list and talk about their placement on the revamped 2021 list. We'll also have guests join us, ranging from the artists themselves to the producers or simply other writers like ourselves who voted on them. From classics like Fleetwood Mac's Dreams to the Ronettes' Be My Baby, and modern day classics like The Killer's Mr. Brightside and Britney Spears' Baby One More Time. There's so many fascinating stories that have been forgotten, like Midnight Train to Georgia, starting with a phone call to Farrah Fawcett, or how the Yeah, Yeah, Yeahs inspired Kelly Clarkson's banger Since You've Been Gone and Beyonce's Hold Up. Listen to Rolling Stone's 500 Greatest Songs on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. I'm Saleya Mosin, and I've covered economic policy for years and reported on how it impacts people across the United States. In 2016, I saw how voters were leaning towards Trump and how so many Americans felt misunderstood by Washington. So I started The Big Take D.C., 
We dig into how money, politics, and power shape government and the consequences for voters. It's an election year, so there's a lot of focus on the voters that TikTok is reaching. The initial reaction is like, oh, things are looking so resilient. I don't want to be too pessimistic, but I just don't see the political will down in Washington right now to, to change their tune. I think the American electorate has been signaling that it expects a rematch of the 2020 election. These are unprecedented times. With new episodes every Thursday, you can listen to The Big Take DC on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. The Big Take from Bloomberg News brings you what's shaping the world's economies with the smartest and best-informed business reporters around the world. Western nations like the U.S. and Europe Mexico will likely have its first female president. And then you have China. And help you understand what's happening, what it means, and why it matters. He'll get his yo-yos to Europe in time. But the longer this drags on, the more worry he's getting. They knew that they needed to do this as fast as they possibly could to get a drug on the market as fast as they could. I'm David Gura. I'm Sarah Holder. I'm Saleha Mosin. We cover the stories behind what's moving money and markets. Basically, everyone was expecting, if not a calamity, certainly a recession. But the problem is that that paperwork, as our reporting showed, is fake. As someone who's covering the market, I'm often very worried about an imminent collapse. I'm thinking about it quite often. Listen to The Big Take on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. So, that album comes out, okay? And that's the album you start to get royalties on. Mm-hmm. And is the band happy with the record? Oh, absolutely. Okay. And then then is it uh, Crown of Creation? Then we do Crown of Creation. Um, and uh, then Bless It's Pointed a Little Head. Which is the live album. The live album. So what was it like making a live album back then? It was cool. We did half of it in um, San Francisco and half of it in New York um, live. And was it 100% live? Yeah. Oh, yeah. Okay, because sometimes yeah. people, you know, faked it. No, no, it. no. This is real live. And in New York, before they went on, they would uh, – King Kong was on the uh, screen. Okay. So at the end, when the guy said it wasn't uh, wasn't the airplane that killed uh, the beast, it was beauty. Right. You know, kind of thing. So I love that. And we were able to get permission to put that on the record. Really? Yeah, I think that opens the record. So, um, how many shows did you have to record to get it? Oh, oh, I know. <laughs> when we were in New York, it was Thanksgiving, so we had Thanksgiving together, dinner together, all of us, while they were playing at the clubs. Uh, we would do, um, we record uh, maybe three or four shows in each place, and and usually have enough. And did you? How many mics would it take? Well, yeah, quite quite a few. Just a guesstimate, twenty maybe. And at the time, did the record plane have a truck, or what did you use to record? Yeah, it? yeah, there was a truck, and uh, the Wally had had the truck in San Francisco, and uh, we had a, a truck in New York. I, I can't remember who RCA had one, I think. So something like that, a live album. How long did it take you to mix it? The most time takes picking. You know, you got like, you do five shows. Right. So now you got five versions of right. that song. So you got to listen to each version 
figure out the best one and and take that. So it's con- time consuming. Did you ever cut like half of one song with half of the other? No, I no, not on live. So I've I've done it in the studio, right? Uh, yeah, well, many times, but not on anything live. No. Okay, so that album comes out. Tell me about Volunteers, which was a mega production. Yeah, that that's my favorite. It uh, is my favorite too. Yeah, and you know, a quick story. Uh, I sent the uh, tapes back to New York. Just to be clear, because this was pre-digital. Yeah. How would you literally get the tapes to New York? Would they send them with a guy? Uh, yeah, that or they um, they mail them. Okay. You know, like uh, UPS or whatever. Really? Or something. I I think. Okay. Yeah, I I that they had a special mailing department of this. Okay. So uh, we we send the tapes back, and all of a sudden, my phone rings. Oh, Al, you can't do this. What do you mean? <laughs> Up against the wall, motherfucker. Right. Is not going to work. I said, well, what do you want me to do? They got to take it out. So I said, well, what if they don't? And he said, well, we're not going to release it like that. I said, okay, let me talk to them. So you know, I go back and I talk to uh, get the group together, everybody, and they're not going to, re- you got to change this. They're not going to release it like this. They're not what? You, you either change it or the record's not coming out. They said, fine, fuck them. <laughs> Don't put it out. So I called back, tell New York. They said, fine, don't put it out then. They're not changing it. This is when I learned a big lesson about record companies. You know, it's all about the money. Of course. All of a sudden, it came out untouched just the way we did it. You know, there no bullshit remember, because they wanted the billing. And that was a big album. Right. Also, I remember Eskimo Blue Day had Doesn't Mean Shit to a Tree. Right. That was another one. I know. Some of the greatest stuff. Exactly. Yeah. That, Compared that was real, to his dream, right. the American dream doesn't mean shit to a tree. Right. <laughs> we need more of that today. Yes, yes, absolutely. Okay, so let's go back. Okay. You do, uh, you're now independent. By accident, almost. <laughs> you do after bathing at Baxter's. Right. That takes five months. Then what? Well, then I'm into the more with the Jefferson Airplane. And then they started a label called Grunt. Right. And uh, they liked me. So I started doing some of the Grunt acts. And then I wound up doing the the, the original Hot Tuna record. Right. The acoustic one, right. which... And that that's another story. Well, uh, tell me the story. The story was uh, we we were up in um, uh, San Francisco and uh, at a, at a club, and um, and Owsley is doing front of the house. Right, the king of acid. So I'm I'm drinking apple juice, talking to Owsley. Right. And I have um, Wally Hyde's truck, and my engineer was a guy by the name of Alan Sense, and. Uh, so I finish everything, and now they're going to go on. First show and everything. Right. So I get in the truck, and I got a pad and a pencil, and I'm sitting back, and Alan's right there, and we had gotten our sounds at the beginning. Everything was good. And uh, all of a sudden, I, my feet went 200 yards. <laughs> and the whole truck expanded and then back. And it was like, what the hell was that? And then it happened again, and then I knew what happened. And I turned to Alan. I said, Alan, you're on your own. 
I had a pad. I was going to write notes. There's not one note down on that first show. How many shows did you record then? If we you recorded, uh, I think, four four shows. Okay, you were living in L.A. Yeah. Okay, were you using any drugs? Was I? Yes. Oh, yeah. Okay. Yeah, plenty. I'm, I'm sober now over 32 years. You're right. But, yeah, I was. I was and in, what drugs were you using? Everything. Okay. Cocaine, weed, of course. Everybody smoked marijuana. Uh, a lot of cocaine. Uh, acid once in a while. Okay. So had you taken acid prior to that? Oh, yeah, okay. yeah. So I, I, you, you knew what was going on. I knew on. What, what was happening. Okay. Did you, because in the late, certainly as we hit the 70s, people were using cocaine so they could stay up and work. Right. Did you use it for that? Yeah, reason? yeah. We, yeah. Yeah. And where would you get it? From anybody. I mean, you'd walk into a session and everybody had their own bottle in those days. <laughs> everybody was doing it. Well, and those were the days when it was told, we were told it wasn't um, habit forming. Right, exactly. You know, and uh, so, yeah, hey, this is great if we can keep going. And, uh, yeah. We, okay, so for this period from uh, – like 68 to 71, 72, are you working outside of Grunt, outside of Jefferson Airplane? Um, yeah, yeah. So how are you getting that work? Um, I get calls. You know, I have uh, my uh, my attorney, right. Al Schlesinger, help. He would uh, send people to me and so forth. That's how I wound up doing Al Turo. Um because of him. Uh, so I was getting work, small work. Uh, I did a group called Ivory. Right. You know, modern, modern in, that, in that era, a band like that, how long would it take you to do it? Uh, two weeks, a couple okay. of weeks. Okay. So how do you end up doing Alone Together? Do you already know Tommy LaPuma? Yeah. Tommy, Tommy, um, I met Tommy in 1960. He was a song plugger. Oh, really? For Metro Music. And he would come in, one of the guys would come in and bring me songs. And we hit it off right away, Tommy and I. We just became friends. And he would bring me songs for Eddie Fisher, for this one or whatever. And I know he was a saxophone player. And I know he wanted to produce and, and do that, so... Um, so we became fast friends, and we would hang out and go out together at dinner and get a high together, and I'd go to his sessions, he'd come to mine, um, and we just became close friends. So he was uh, doing an album with uh, Dave Mason, and Bruce Botnick was the engineer. Right, he, the Doors engineer. The Doors engineer, and he had a start time with the Doors on a new album that he had to leave and start on that day. So Tommy said, I need somebody to mix this album. He said, you used to engineer, Al. Why don't you mix it? I said, no, I don't think I could do it anymore. Tommy is, oh yeah, it's like riding a bike. <laughs> so yeah, so we're back and forth. So finally we make a little pact. Okay, I'll go in with you. We'll give it a shot. If I feel I'm not doing it, you'll let me back off. And if you feel I'm not doing it, you got to let me know, no hard feeling. So we make the deal. I go in, I start mixing this record, that beautiful sounding record that Bruce did. And I'm in heaven. You know, it's all of a sudden, it's back to where I started. 
the reason I'm in this business in the first place is to be able to move things around and balance things. And that was it. And and when I we finished that record, I'm, I think it took us a week to mix it. Uh, it it just it was great. It's a great sounding record. I was one happy. of the great records of all time. One of the things yeah. you can play from beginning to end. Right, exactly. Great songs. Right. You know, and they're doing a documentary on him coming up soon. No, we did a podcast with him. You know, uh, he can still Dave. really play the guitar. Oh, yeah. No, no. Yeah, but only you know and I know. Yeah. It shouldn't have took more than you gave. Yeah. Look at you. Look at yeah. me. Unbelievable yeah. stuff. Yeah, that, that was it. That was the best of, of the best. So then that comes out, and then I get a call from Neil Larson, who uh, wants to do a record. So, okay, he's, he's halfway done with the record. He wants to do the other half with me at Sunset Sound. So uh, we set up the uh, the whole studio. Which act is this again? Uh, Neil Young. Okay. Yeah. We set up the studio like a living room. And and we were doing On the Beach. Right. And uh, so we did three songs there. And there's another story with that. Uh, people would come in from the record company, and, and we had one multi-track tape machine that we were recording on. And people would come in and want to hear what we were doing. So we'd be in one song, and so we'd have to take the tape off, put another tape on and play them what we did and everything else. So we finally decided to make to a, a, a little two-track. Right. Uh, a couple rough. Right, so right, we right. Exactly. So you that. didn't have to keep So pages. we didn't have to right. keep doing this. Well, that's all well and good. We finished the record. Everything's great. Yeah, when are we going to mix, Neil? Oh, no, no, Al. I like the rough mixes. I said, <laughs> oh, no, Neil. He said, yeah, no, I, I think that, that, that's exactly what I want. I said, look, let me go in and do it. Let me do it. I'll pay for it myself and all. But I know. It. No, no, this is it. I, I, that was it. So there was no more arguing or or anything else, and and Neil to this day, every time he sees me or he'll see somebody else say something about Al. Oh yeah, ask Al if he still wants a remix on the beat. <laughs> he still does that. Well, it's funny because his first album came out and he was pissed about the mix, and he redid it. Yeah. So, uh, and you do you ever work with Neil again? Yeah, yeah, I work with Neil quite a bit. I just did a hundred piece orchestra with him at uh, MGM. Just recently, yeah, yeah, the, his two albums ago. Okay, you know, it, uh, we had choir and sixty-five piece orchestra and everything done live. He sang live right out in the middle of the orchestra. It was amazing. Okay, so how did you end up working on Asia, Steely Dan? Oh, <laughs> I got a call. Uh, Gary Katz, producer, okay. right? Uh, did you and, know him? Oh yeah. Okay. Yeah, and um, so I get a call, and hey, uh, we have a uh, uh, we have a song or two uh, we want you to mix. Right. So I said. So you didn't track that. No, no, okay. no I didn't track anything on that album. Okay. Uh, just mixed two songs. So yeah, I was working at Sound Labs. Armin Steiner owned the studio, and um, so I'm sitting there waiting. They bring the tapes in a bunch of limiters that they were thinking about using. And uh, so it's the song is Peg. Right. So they take off, and I'm messing around with with Peg. And um, 
So I get a fairly good balance on it, you know, and I turn the monitor down, and I'm looking at the meters, uh, like that, checking out everything. Great. Uh, little did I know they walked in while I was doing that. And then I turned the monitor up, and I had this pretty good mix right. that I had done before they came in. And they freaked out. <laughs> and Gary Kess says, Al, Al can mix a record without even hearing it. <laughs> it was that kind of thing. And, I mean, they were blown away. <laughs> but in the long run, it was Peg was the song, and we wound up mixing it. And there were, in those days, there was no automation right, on, on a the console. Board. So everybody had a part. Right. So, you know. You uh, needed a lot of hands. One guy, right. One guy added Echo to a guitar part. Another guy did this. And so it was all, there were like four of us over the board. And it was all about a performance. And we spent almost 12 hours on Peg to get that the way it was because every time if I'd get it right someone else screw up or yeah you got so that many yeah, hands right everybody had to be perfect and what was the other song you did on Asia uh, on Asia Deacon Blues <laughs> that's my favorite song on Asia they call Alabama the Crimson Tide right, only right. Deacon Blues right. oh god that's a great song okay yeah. so um, let's go back to the beginning you're from New York oh boy Okay, so your parents born where? New York. Brooklyn. Okay, how many generations have they already been here, your family? Um, God, on my mother's side, back during the Mayflower time. Oh, really? I mean, yeah, yeah, Connecticut Yankees. <laughs> um, on my father's side, uh, his mother came over from Germany when she was three. Uh, his father was here before then. He... he he was born here, I think, his father. And he was a blacksmith. Blacksmith? You know, yeah, yeah, he did horseshoes. And he worked, And then he worked for the Mack Trucking Company. What did he do for them? The Mack, he was the blacksmith. blacksmith. Right. Wow. Okay, so you grow up where? I grew up in Brooklyn. So what was it like back then? It was like Mean Streets, if you've ever seen that movie. <laughs> really? Uh, yeah, it was pretty. Yeah, it's a tough area, tough neighborhood. and. A lot of gangs, a lot of fights, a lot of that kind of thing. And how did you fit in there? Uh, probably just like every other little jerky kid, you know, getting in trouble and all. Um, I, I was I was really blessed in, in the sense that my father's brother, Harry Smith, his real name was Schmidt, but he changed it because of the German settlement right. back then. He, um, he was a recording engineer for um, Brunswick. Brunswick he, Records. Yeah, he did the Sing 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 record, right. you know, Benny Goodman, all those. So he had a recording studio. And when I was little, my, my he dad- He had his own recording studio. His, yeah, Harry and, Smith Recording. It and was where a, was that? In New York City on 2 West 46th. And it was the first independent recording studio in New York. Sonata did his first vocal ever in a studio there. Yeah, it's an amazing time. So we would go over- and visiting him when I was little, my, he he didn't have any children, and so but he was besides my uncle, he was also my godfather, so he treated me like I was his son, and um, and I was always amazed by everything, and you know, and so he showed me and watching big bands record, and uh, so when I got to be about eight, 
I was able to get on the subway by myself, walk a few blocks, get on the subway, get over, get off at 46th Street, walk back one block to his studio, and I'd spend the weekend with my uncle. And you literally sleep at his house? or you? I'd cover- stay at his house. He had a beautiful apartment on Riverside Drive. Back then, my father was making like 17 bucks a, a right. week. And at the end of the day, on Sunday, when it was time for me to go back, my uncle would give me a $20 bill. Wow. And I would give it to my mom. And and he knew my dad wouldn't take it. Right. He was too proud to, for that. But that giving it to me to give to my mom, she made sure it went to good use. Okay, just at the time, how many kids in the family? At that time, there were three. And where are you in the hierarchy? I'm first. You're the oldest. All yeah. the hopes and dreams are in you. <laughs> and at school, you good or bad at school? I was good at school. I didn't like school, but I was good at school. And um, um, I was good at math. With, well, you need to be good at math to be an engineer. Yeah. Um, yeah. It. Um, I just – I didn't like school, you know. So when I was like 13 – and I stopped going to my uncle's studio. I started playing hooky from school. And I would go over to see Sinatra at the Paramount Theater with Tommy Dorsey. And for a quarter, for a quarter you could um, get in. And, right. And then we would hide so we could stay and see a couple shows. Right. It was, you know, it was really amazing. Okay, so why did you stop working with your uncle? I, I start. I started hanging out with a gang, <laughs> and I, I started uh, getting in some trouble. And how serious? Yeah. What was the most trouble you got in? Well, I got a couple. A couple times I got arrested. Never booked on anything, but arrested for being where I shouldn't have been, and so forth. So it taught me a lesson, and it kept getting worse. And um, so, from the time I was like thirteen and a half. On my 17th birthday, my parents signed for me to enlist in the Navy. Okay. Had you finished high school? Uh, I just finished high school. Okay. Just to go back for a second, are you popular in school or are you just one of the people there or whatever? Yeah, I was pretty popular. I mean, I always had a lot of friends. Okay. You know, we used to hang out. I played softball all the time. I played a lot of sports. Um, and, yeah, I know I had a lot of friends. Okay. So – your parents enlisted you because they wanted to get you out of trouble? Yeah. yeah. And if what did I, you say? I said yes because I knew that I was going to wind up in jail or something. I mean, you know, we were just running, uh, you know, money for the bookies, that kind of stuff. They were they were going out to the airport and stealing out there. And also I knew it was like somebody tapped me on the shoulder and said, get out of here. You're going to be in trouble. And so I'm good, and I went to um, I went to Great Lakes. Okay, wait, wait, wait. Which branch of the service is it? Navy. Okay. Well, I was in the Navy. I went to Great Lakes. Uh, my IQ was very high, so when we got out of boot camp, uh, <laughs> the the guy said, "Well, what do you want to do in the Navy?" I said, well, "I just want to be a bosun's mate. You know, somebody on the deck." Uh, no, 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 your IQ is too high for that. So they sent me to school in Washington, D.C., communication school, and it's decoding and how to break down code and Russian code and this kind of stuff. So I do that for a year. Just to be clear, 
You listen to the uh, Navy, any thought in the back of your mind, this is right after World War II, that maybe there's a war and you're going to get your ass shot off? I, you know, there was no, at 17, you don't think about that. <laughs> and you you don't think you're ever going to be the one that's going to get hurt right. anyway. So, yeah, so that that was pretty cool. But I... Um, you were taking the communication course, you were decoded. Yeah, yeah, that was that. And then, so, I, you know, in Washington, at that time, it was great. Um, people like uh, uh, Lady Day, she couldn't work in New York because of the um, um, cabaret. She couldn't get a cabaret license because of the drug use. And that was a big problem back then. So all of those artists would come down to Washington, D.C., which was where I was going to school. Right. And so, I mean, every weekend, there was a place called Captain Tom's. There were some other clubs, but we had the best of the best jazz artists coming down there all the time. So so every weekend, it was, you know, it was just great. And I'd get to see all these people and and enjoy, uh, enjoy that. So um, I got out of the service. How long were you in the service? A little over two years. Okay. And I got out, and I was thinking of going to City College. Right. Um, I was only home for like 10, 11 days, and my uncle called me. And he said, a friend of mine has a studio, and they're looking for an assistant. Would you be interested? I said, absolutely. I didn't know what I was going to do. Right. So he said, great, okay. Um, go over and talk to him. I'll set everything up. And did. I went and I talked to the guy, and he was my uncle's best friend. Right, right, right. Like, I knew I was going to get the right. job, you know. So, okay, report Monday, 9 o'clock. Where was this studio? This was on, um, this was in the Steinway building on 57th. Okay. Right across from Carnegie Hall. Right. And, and you're uh, living where? I'm living in Brooklyn. Uh, with your parents? No, 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 no. no, no. Yes, yes, with okay. my parents. Okay. Right. Um, so, uh. Do you get the job? I get the job. I show up. I knew I was going to get it anyway. Show up Monday, 9 a.m. I get there. The boss takes me uh, and he introduces me to the two engineers who work there. One was a German engineer who wore a monocle. <laughs> I swear. And, and even a white coat and would click his heels kind of thing. And the other was this young guy about 26, 27 years old. Tommy Dowd. Wow. So I look at Tommy, Tommy looks at me, and it was like instant friendship or something. So that was it. So he bought me a notebook, and then I was under his wing. And we worked together at that studio for two years. And then the studio folded. He went to another studio, and, and I went to a place called NOLA, uh, recording, which is a recording studio and a uh, and a rehearsal hall. So I was there a year, and t Tommy called me and said, "This studio that I'm at, looking for another guy, and I recommended you come on over." And I went over and interviewed, and I got that job. That was and the name of that studio. That was called Fulton Recording. Okay, which later was bought by. Uh, Oh, God, I can't think of the name of the company now. I'll think of it, though. Um, anyway, so Fulton, and it was uh, Tommy and me and uh, an engineer by the name of Bob Doherty 
And and we were doing all the Gillette commercials, Look Sharp, all those things, cigarette commercials. Okay, and so a lot of big just band say, stuff. when you were at the first studio, <coughs> uh, were you cutting music or were you cutting commercials? We were doing a little of everything. We we did Voice of the America okay. uh, stuff on 16-inch transcription discs, right. shows in, in different languages. Telly Savalas, his whole family would come, and they would, in, in Greek, they would do these shows that would get broadcast over to Greece. Um, so it was that was interesting. But we also were doing all the Atlantic work and prestige records, uh, national records. There were a lot of little labels sitting in. Uh, so we were doing all this work. Um and and getting to do uh, some of the great Atlantic acts, right? You know, because Tom worked ultimately with them. He, yeah, right. So you're working in this studio with Tom and the other guy. What are the hours in that era? Uh, <laughs> it could be any time. You know, if even if you worked late till eleven, you still had to be in in the morning around nine in the morning. So. Um, <laughs> Yeah, we did, there wasn't a lot of late, late stuff, but yeah, you know, we'd go seven to ten sometimes. Okay, so how? Do, so when did you get married in this picture? So I got married uh, right in the middle. Okay, so <laughs> how hard was it, or how understanding did your wife have to be about these hours? Uh, yeah, she she was pretty good about it. I think she was happy we got married just to get out of. The environment she was in, which was not very good, you know, her parents were uh, splitting up and having. So, how yeah. did you meet her? I met her at a dance. Uh, what was a bunch, dance like back then? Back then, yeah, it was a dance. You know, we'd have Charlie Ventura and Bob for the People, and everybody be out there jitterbugging and dancing, and you know, it'd be a lot of single guys, single girls. And you go and ask somebody to dance, and yeah, it was a lot of fun. Welcome to 500 Greatest Songs, a podcast based on Rolling Stone's hugely popular, influential, and sometimes controversial list. I'm Brittany Spanos. And I'm Rob Sheffield. We're here to shed light on the greatest songs ever made and discover what makes them so great. Every week, we'll pick a new song from the list and talk about their placement on the revamped 2021 list. We'll also have guests join us, ranging from the artists themselves to the producers, or simply other writers like ourselves who voted on them. From classics like Fleetwood Mac's Dreams to The Ronettes' Be My Baby, and modern-day classics like The Killer's Mr. Brightside and Britney Spears' Baby One More Time. There's so many fascinating stories that have been forgotten, like Midnight Train to Georgia, starting with a phone call to Farrah Fawcett, or how the Yeah, Yeah, Yeahs inspired Kelly Clarkson's banger Since You've Been Gone and Beyonce's Hold Up. Listen to Rolling Stone's 500 Greatest Songs on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. I'm Saleya Mosin, and I've covered economic policy for years and reported on how it impacts people across the United States. In 2016, I saw how voters were leaning towards Trump and how so many Americans felt misunderstood by Washington. So I started The Big Take D.C., we dig into how money, politics, and power shape government and the consequences for voters. It's an election year, so there's a lot of focus on the voters that TikTok is reaching. The initial reaction is like, oh, things are looking so resilient. 
I don't want to be too pessimistic, but I just don't see the political will down in Washington right now to, to change their tune. I think the American electorate has been signaling that it expects a rematch of the 2020 election. These are unprecedented times. With new episodes every Thursday, you can listen to The Big Take DC on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. The Big Take from Bloomberg News brings you what's shaping the world's economies with the smartest and best-informed business reporters around the world. Western nations like the U.S. and Europe. Mexico will likely have its first female president. And then you have China. And help you understand what's happening, what it means, and why it matters. He'll get his yo-yos to Europe in time. But the longer this drags on, the more worry he's getting. They knew that they needed to do this as fast as they possibly could to get a drug on the market as fast as they could. I'm David Gura. I'm Sarah Holder. I'm Saleya Mosin. We cover the stories behind what's moving money and markets. Basically, everyone was expecting, if not a calamity, certainly a recession. But the problem is that that paperwork, as our reporting showed, is fake. As someone who's covering the market, I'm often very worried about an imminent collapse. So I'm thinking about it quite often. Listen to The Big Take on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Okay, so you're working at the studio with Tom, and then what happens next? Well, I'm there three months, and they, they, uh, my boss says, okay, Saturday you're in on all by yourself. There's just a three little demo records, one at 10, one at 12, one at two, and you do that. So the guy comes in, first guy, he plays guitar and sings a song he wrote for his daughter. We cut a acetate at 78, done. We give it to him. He gives me $15, and he leaves. The other guy comes in, he sits down at the piano, and he plays a song, uh, Happy Birthday, for somebody. So I cut the acetate, I give it to him, and 15 bucks, and he leaves. So now I'm waiting for a guy by the name of Mercer to show up. So the elevator doors open up, and all these musicians start coming out. And I said, whoa, what's going on? We're on the second floor. Uh, we're here for the record date. No, no. Mercer, Mercer Records, Mercer Ellington, Duke Ellington's son. I said, oh, no, no, that's a mistake. And here's Johnny Hodges standing in front of me. And right, right. Billy Strayhorn and I'm, you know, he's <laughs> like, it's like Babe Ruth and Joe DiMaggio. Yeah, right, exactly. Like, I mean, I'm, my heart's going like this. And so I get on the phone. I right. call, call Tommy, no answer. Back then there were no cells or anything. Right. Call him, no answer. I don't know what the hell to do. So we only had an eight-input console. Right. And I had that book that Tommy bought me, and I all the diagrams, how they set up and what mics. So I got the book, went in, I set up, put the mics where they, they were, and and the guys kept showing up. And they were sitting down and laughing and doing whatever. And I'm in the control room trying to figure out what the, how I'm going to do this. And Duke Ellington walks in. <laughs> He's got this gorgeous brown suit on. I mean, just in, you know, the way he had his hair done and all. And I said, Mr. Ellington, there's a huge mistake here. He said, why is that? I said, well... They thought this was just a little demo, and, and I'm not qualified 
to do anything like this. He said, what do you mean? I said, well, I've never done anything like this. And he looked out, he said, everybody looks comfortable out there. <laughs> I said, yeah, but, you know, it's in here that I'm worried about. He said, no, 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 don't. we'll get through it. Don't worry. Just relax. And he really did everything to calm me down. I think he thought that if I don't calm him down, we're not going to get anything. Right. So we did. He calmed me down, kept patting my thigh. <laughs> he sat right next to me. Don't worry. So we're going. He said, then, you know, I hear the saxophone. Oh, saxophone sound wonderful. You know, he, right, stuff right, right, like right. that. He, nice comments and all. So we got through it. I did four songs, three or four songs in three hours. And that was it. And that was my first session. First thing, and you know, Duke Ellington. Oh my God, I couldn't believe it. <laughs> so then, three weeks later, I'm doing the same thing. So now I finish at two. Just to be clear, this is the very first studio you work out of the third? First. Okay. So, so uh, I finish up. I'm doing the same thing, demos. And the last one's at two, and I'm finished. I'm getting ready, you know, going to go home. And phone rings, I pick it up. It's Herb Abramson. From Atlanta. Lenny said, hey, Al, is anybody in the studio this afternoon? I said, no, 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 nobody here. He said, I'm going to bring a group over. Are you cool with that? I said, yeah, sure. You know, I didn't want to say no. I couldn't. Right. So he brought over this group, and uh, and we cut two songs. One song was Skylark, which is the B-side, and the other was a song called Don't You Know I Love You which became a huge race record hit. I mean, a big hit. It was on the charts for like 12 weeks in a row, and I had recorded it. So now I had Duke Ellington and a hit, a race record hit, R&B hit back then. So then Atlantic started using me on more things. When Tommy was busy doing something, I started doing Clyde McFadder, uh, Modern Jazz Quartet, Chris Connor, you know, th that kind of stuff. So I was really starting to hone up on, on things and how to do things and, and learning more all the time from Tommy. So that's pretty Okay, so it. you're there, then you go to the other place. Now you're back with Tommy. Back with Tommy. And you're cutting what? Cutting everything. A lot of Tico records, Tito Puente, Tito Rodriguez, Machido, uh, Cab Calloway, uh, you know, a lot of that. I'm doing a lot of... World Pacific Jazz right. records, uh, Cherry Mulligan, The Songbook, uh, Chet, Chet Baker, uh, Bobby Brookmeyer, Jim Hall, you know, all those great jazz things. And, and the studio was pretty famous for the jazz. A lot of jazz artists like to work there. The studio was built— Once again, the name of the studio was? Uh, Fulton Recording. That was Fulton, okay. Yeah, and it was the later bought by uh, Coastal. Recording, okay. recording, and then it, the name changed to Coastal. But um, yeah, it was Tommy Dowd, me trying to think, and the other two guys, Heinz Kubica was there, and engineers. That, right, right. So uh, how did that play out? How long were you there? I was there uh, four years. Oh, a long time. Yeah, I was there about four years. Making Doing what really kind? Of, well. what, what kind of money? Uh, good money. Because good money. Of, yeah, top union money. So I was doing really well. I was, yeah, very happy. And so after four years, what happens? Well, Dick Bach, who owned World Pacific Jazz, right. he would use me all the time uh, on his great jazz albums. And uh, 
So we were there doing street swingers or something, and uh, he, uh, Jimmy Jufri, uh, you know, some of the great old. And he said, Al, you ought to move to California. Then I don't have to fly all the way to New York to use you. And I, you know, we joke, and he laughed. And I said, all right, well, get me a job, and I'll come out. That was it. Three weeks later, I get a call on the phone. Dick Bach, Al, I got your job out here. Best studio in, in L.A. They know you work. They want you. Good money. It's yours if you want it. you got to let me know in two weeks. I talked it over with my wife. We had two kids at that time. Um, I was still a baby myself. Um, and we did. We we moved out to uh, Burbank. But that was what year? <laughs> that was 1958, the same year the Dodgers moved. You moved with the Dodgers. I so. moved with the Dodgers. <laughs> I was an ardent Dodger fan all my life. So, yeah, I moved with the Dodgers. Okay, so you live, moved to Burbank. What was Burbank like then? It was very nice. Burbank was nice. You know, small. We, we had a nice little, uh, we had a, a two-bedroom condo, and and it was nice. And uh, we had some friends that lived down the street. It was kind of, it was, it was nice. I was working most of the time. You know, I see. So. so it wasn't a matter of adjusting. You were in the darkness the whole time. Maybe. Yeah, right, right. Okay, so you go to work for this studio. The name of that is? Um, that is uh, Radio Recorders. Okay, so you're at Radio Recorders, and that ultimately ties up with moving to RCA. Right. Okay. Eventually, yeah. Okay. So when you're recording at that era, okay, when you start with Duke Ellington, what is the equipment like? Well, the equipment, uh, there are a lot of good microphones back then. You know, the uh, the great um, um Neumann microphone that have that forty seven. Right. Everybody, you know, that came out in forty seven. And is that uh, why it's called I think the so. Yeah, I think so. And um, they, uh, you could buy one back then for three hundred bucks. Wow! Yeah, try try that today. Right. So um, the equipment we were starting to get um, good uh, two microphones and things. And one of the things we were Tommy and I. And the engineers back in New York, we were using those tube mics a lot. When I came to California, they weren't using them really as much. And I started like putting it on a bass instrument, and bass players were coming in saying, "Oh man, I love that sound on my bass." And other engineers would come well, in. They were and, all everybody were using ribbon mics out here. They were using different things, right yeah, now. different ribbon or or whatever. You same with the drums. So, it, you know, we had, we were using different microphone techniques back east than they were out here, or different mics on different instruments. Right, right. And uh, so I started doing what I knew I could do. Right. And I started getting a lot of work then. They were starting to record this record with Hank Mancini, Henry Mancini, who was an arranger. Right. And I worked with him as, as as an arranger on different things. And the nicest guy, but uh, Bones Howe, who is an incredible engineer and right. producer, um, he was doing the record. And um, evidently, Cy Rady, who was the producer, and Bones, something happened. But either Bones said, look, I, I'm not gonna, I can't do this anymore, and left or whatever. But all I know is I got grabbed by the shirt collar 
and said, okay, Al, you're doing this. So I wound up finishing the Peter Gunn album. And then because of that, I started doing all the Mancini stuff. And then because of that, I started doing a lot of the RCA stuff. Right. Um, you know, Ray Peterson and some of the acts that they had back then. Okay, but going more about the equipment, you've lived through a lot of evolution. First, talk about the boards. What did you feel? You know, it was they were the big thing in the seventies was the Neve boards, and all of a sudden it went to SSL and digital. What's your viewpoint on all that stuff? Well, I don't use digital boards. I don't like them. Either. That was my question. Okay, yeah, tell, yeah. tell me why. I don't know. I just don't like the way they sound. I, I like analog boards. My favorite board is a Neve analog board. I love the preamps. I love the way they sound. But but there are a lot of great boards out there uh, that I can work on. The quad was a, a really good one. Uh, there's you know many many nice good consoles. I'm not a big SSL fan. Right. Um, it seems the tide has turned against them anyway. Yeah. Yeah. So I I just it, everything just it it didn't sound musical enough for me. And how about when we went to digital? What do you think about that? Well, I hated it at first, and I I was not going to go. Okay. I mean, I did like um, I did a digital album with uh, with a group on Warner Brothers. I can't think of the name of the group now. Uh, it'll come to me. But um, what would happen would you know, we would... This is with the Mitsubishi recorder? Or yeah, the well, yeah. the Mitsubishi, right. the 32 track, right, right. you know, like, yeah. That's what we used on right. on Barbara a lot. You know, she had her own, or you know, Columbia gave her a machine. I didn't know that. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. So if she had a machine, what else did she have? She had that, that's for sure, and that was on every session. So, so she would truck it in from wherever it was. Yeah, we should have Okay, somebody. so you're working with this act on Warner Brothers, and what happens? Um, which act? You uh, say you were doing the digital album. Oh, right, right, yeah. It just didn't sound real musical to me, you know? So I, I just stayed away from it. And everybody was starting to go to 48K, you know? And I, So when it went to 96, right. and they were able to, you know, elevate the quality, then it started sounding really good, and you couldn't tell the difference. So my assistant... When we were doing, we were doing something with um, Tommy LaPuma and, and Diana. And um, so we recorded it on analog tape and Pro Tools at, at 98. So when they came in to listen, and they, they didn't want to convert, they right. wanted, we just switched back and forth from the analog to the digital because we had them locked up and they couldn't tell the difference. They didn't even notice we were. So that was great. Okay, all right, we'll do that. But she liked the piano solo in take two better than the one in take three. So in Pro Tools, he just, my, my assistant, dropped it in, took the other one, and it was done. It took two, <laughs> 30 seconds. If we had to cut tape and do all that, it would take in a half an hour. And now you have musicians hanging around you know, waiting uh, while we're cutting tape and, and doing this way. We didn't have any of that. So that was it. That was the conversion. And from then on, I've just talked to everybody. And I, I go, um, I do everything at 192. Right. Now, and uh, I love the quality and 
It's just a reproduction we have to worry about. Right, exactly. Right, okay. So when you moved into Pro Tools, your assistant ran the Pro Tools rig? And still at this point, he's the guy who's running it? Or to yeah. what degree are you familiar with Pro, Pro Tools? Yeah, I, I can, they set me up so I can start and stop and go back and forth. But, yeah, I don't want to get into all that other stuff of editing and Pro Tools. Not my thing. How important is the room, the recording room? Wow, probably the most important. Uh, yeah, if you have a good room to start with. If you have a bad room, it's almost impossible to get a good sound. Uh, you know, you've really got to have to use your imagination on 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 how you want to do things. But a good room, is, you know, you can put mics almost anywhere. You're going to get good reflection, you know. And, and the fact that you get leakage makes things... Give, gives them more dimension. It makes things sound bigger and more open. But leakage would make it harder to uh, mix, right? Well, it it depends on, on the leakage, you know, the kind of leakage. That's why I always tell everybody, you want to use great microphones because when you get leakage on a good microphone, you're getting good leakage. <laughs> and that is a good thing. When you got a cheap mic and you're getting that cheap, Leakage, you don't want that. That's just cluttering up stuff. So Now, is a good room magic, or are there certain things that you can do to make it a good room if someone is constructing? Well, I think, yeah, I think that you can help make a room into a good room. Um, but it would have to start out to be reasonably good in, in the beginning. Um, yeah, you know, in good rooms, sometimes they just accidentally happen. Some guy puts a couple things up and and it's magic. Now, of the studios you've worked in, which ones have good rooms? Well, look, the original RCA studios at Sunset and Vine, they had two rooms there, uh, A and B. And those are two of the best rooms I've ever worked in. And is that because accident or do they have engineers come in and they had a- they had engineers come right. in and do everything and and um and test it with a lot of testing was done. Um, another great room is a room like uh, MJM Scoring Stage. Right. Oh my God, that's Sony Scoring Stage. I, it's, it's a gorgeous room. And, you know, you look at it and it looks like, you know, it's not even done yet. Right, right. But, but the sound in the room is just amazing. Staying with that because they mix movies and there's an engineer who mixes the music in. Have you ever done that? No. No, no I, I did a lot of... TV stuff early, you know, um, when I worked at RCA as a staff engineer, we would do a lot of documentaries and that kind of stuff, but not a lot of movies. Although I got to work with all the great scorers. Right. Yeah. Okay. So today, everything is flipped. A lot of people make these records digitally at home because they don't want to pay that money. Yeah, you you, uh, side there. Tell me your take. I hate it. I, I just hate it when, you know, I, I hear people, you know, just it's, it's the quality of the stuff. What's happening is the people that set up studios at home and then they don't have money to really buy the best equipment. So they buy cheaper mics, cheaper stuff, to, and they're recording in their bedroom. And, and the quality is just, it's not good. And, and, I don't use plugins, so it's I, and I don't use much EQ or uh, compression on 
on anything I do. Um, and so I find when I get something that I have to mix that was recorded in somebody's bedroom or something, right. I am using everything that I don't use to try to make it put it in a place where it's acceptable, at least. Okay. Sound-wise. But a lot of companies can't pay for those big rooms anymore. True. So how does that affect your sessions? It, it affects quite a bit because I don't get, we don't get as much work, you know, and, and if you can get somebody to, um, to do fixes and overdubs in their bedroom, um, especially if it's just a guitar part, right. that kind of stuff, yeah, you save a lot of money. Okay. Because we're not selling records. You right. know, the 70s and 80s, my God, forget it. You know, this was a, will that ever happen again? I doubt it. No. Okay. But staying in that era and the changes, let's talk about the reproduction. Uh, obviously, cassettes were inferior. If for no other reason, there was a high-speed reproduction. But what is your view, vinyl versus CDs versus streaming? Oh. In terms of on the reproduction end. On the reprint, I only listen to vinyl at home. That's oh, all. really? Yeah, I, that's it. I have a great audio technical turntable, a great pickup, great speed. I have a really nice system. And, and I like. Well, well, let's stop there. What, what is your system? You have the audio technica, yeah, and I it's have, an audio technica pickup? Yeah. And what are your speakers and your amplifiers? My speakers are the uh, Tannoy uh, self uh, powered speakers. I'm not sure the model number. I've had them about. Ten years now, right? Yeah, I bought them for like five, eight thousand bucks or something. Right. Ten years ago, and then I have some Sony uh, um, power yeah. amp. Okay, so what do you use to mix? When I mix it in the studio, yeah, because um, can't always have a specific sound. Yeah. So I was wondering if you, what I you use, use in the studio. I use Tannoy's. You do. Yeah, and I, I what I use, uh, Doug Sachs. Remember right. Doug Sachs, yeah, great engineer, mastering lab. Right, he he came up with these speakers, and it's a Tannoy ten inch driver. Right, and then with uh, mastering lab uh, cabinets. Okay, and crossovers, and I've been using those for the last fifteen years. Wait, wait. So the crossover. So what's the tweeter? It's it's, it's all um, mastering lab. Oh, really? Yeah. Okay. So, and you bring them yourself when you're mixing. Yeah, yeah. Any other gear you bring into the uh, Yeah, I bring a lot of gear. I bring all my preamps. I have about 20 of those. Um, I, um, a couple of compressors that I have. Um, Which compressors do you use? Well, I use it, uh, the Tube Tech 3 band. Okay. And I just use it on the output of the bus, but I just tap it. I use it mainly to get that tube sound from the uh, tube tech. And what about digital reverb? Yeah, well, um, I'm lucky that I work at Capitol all the time. We have the great live chambers. Right. But I have a Procasti. Right. I have a 6000 digital reverb. I have a, a 280. Um, so when I set up reverbs, we set up eight or ten different reverbs. I try. I don't try to put more than one thing in any reverb. Once in a while, it might be two in one, but usually, you know, if I if I have the vocal on something 
uh, a reverb on the vocal. Nothing else will go in that reverb. Now, over time, sounds have changed in terms of what's in, wet, dry, whatever. Is your sound stayed consistent or to what degree have you been influenced by the marketplace? No, no. I I think my sound's stay pretty consistent. I've never been one of those that uh, worry about um, it's certainly now and you know when I make a record I want to make it uh, hopefully it's going to be a hit and uh, and somebody's going to enjoy the benefits of that but uh, I don't I don't go out of my way to to try to make something into something it's not I'm not sure if I answered that question. Yeah, no you did you did let's go back to the vinyl okay vinyl is an inherently limited medium okay now, I understand completely if the it was recorded on tape and the whole chain is analog. But what if it's recorded digitally? Does it make any sense to listen on vinyl? I don't know if that would enhance it in, in, in any way. Um, I don't know. You know what? I, that's something I should check out uh, when I get home. I'll, I'll check that out if I can see what difference there is. Well, I mean, of the records you're listening to at home, are most of them recorded on tape or you have some that are recorded digitally? Oh, some of them were recorded. Because, you know, I've heard different yeah. things because they say, well, if you take 192, which you don't get in, you know, on most other services and, you know. I know. It's, it's an oh, – uh, I've always felt that, yes, in the early days with the records that are cut analog, they're much better on vinyl. Yeah. But the digital ones, I'm not sure. Yeah. Okay. Uh Let's go back to um, Axe. You worked with Toto. Steve Lukather is a good friend of mine. And he said he was the hot session guy, okay? And then someone, I don't remember what said, said, listen, you have a window and then you're done. No matter how good you are, you better find something else. Have you found that to be true? Um, yeah, I think there are times you know, and, and with me, since I've been doing this for so right. long, I've been up and down that stage a couple of times where I've been hot and, you know, I can't, you know, the phone is bringing off the hook. And then other times when I'm scuffling around looking for something to do and then something comes along and I'm all of a sudden I'm a flavor of the month again um, and I'm jammed, you know. So when it's when it's low, is there enough work, or what do you do? Or what do you think? There isn't enough work <laughs> when it's slow. And I go, I hang out with other engineers who are slow. Right. At the same time, we'll go have lunch and do that kind of stuff. Um, you know, I, I have uh, my wife and I collect art, so we're heavily into that. Um, so when I'm off and we have time, we go, we'll go to New York. Uh, go to museums, go to uh, galleries, look at different art and so forth. And uh, so we buy and sell things. And Okay, so you have that as a hobby. Now, people, professionals at, you know, at large, a lot of the prices have gone way down. Have you had to adjust your prices because of the change in the marketplace? Absolutely. What I get now is somebody will call me and, and look – Al, I got right. this amount of money. It's all I got. I'd love to have you mix my record. And I'll talk to him about it and what's going on and what do you think I, you want me to do it. And then, okay, I'll say, all right, you know, you, we got to work out a deal with the studio and then, 
and then I'll get the rest. And I work it out that way because there are acts that I really like to work with. I mean, there are times I do stuff for nothing. And because I, I like the artist, I've got nothing to do. If I can help somebody, you know, there's a new saying out now that kindness is the new hip. And wow. I haven't heard that. Yeah. And it is. Be kind. It changes everything that around you when you're kind to people. And, and I see it all the time in the studio. Okay, let's just assume, are most of your gigs now both recording and mixing, or you have some separate mixing gigs or what? Yeah, I have a few separate mixing gigs. I just mixed a record uh, a little while ago for a New York artist that uh, I started recording her two years ago, <laughs> Ed Cherney and I. Uh, great we, guy. Yeah, I'm the best. And we brought her in the studio in, in New York, and started uh, recording a few things with her for this group I belong to, the Meta Alliance. Anyway, well, a little bit slower. You and Ed w would have worked at the same time. We we were yeah because we teach the Meta Alliance teaches. Um, we do it a couple times a year at a different studio, and so whenever we do, Ed and I work together, I and see. we bring in an act whether it's. Uh, Tony Sutton, right? To, or you know, or whoever, uh, and we we uh, we do it together. So um, so okay, just a little bit slower. What's the Meta Alliance? The Meta Alliance is uh, it was uh, Phil Ramone, right? Me, Ed Cherney, Elliot China, um, George Massenberg, Chuck Ainley, Frank Filippetti, and. Uh, Unfortunately, two of them are gone now, so right. we're getting going to have to get some replacements. Okay, how did it end up happening? It, it ended up happening like we got together and talked about, you know, we're getting, there's so much new equipment coming out all the right. time, and we wanted to do something like the good housekeeping seal of approval. Right. So we made a pact that we would go over a gear, and we would all listen, and if we unanimously liked it, we would recommend it. If one person didn't like it, it, it didn't get recommended. Okay. And that's what we were trying to do. Uh, how much gear would you evaluate? <laughs> uh, microphones, preamps, uh, all kinds of things. Okay, so you were telling the story, you were working with an act, and you were recording it with Ed two years ago. Yeah. And now, what's happening now? Oh, well, she two years ago, and then she started going around the country uh, doing gigs and all, and she would record in different places, go back to New York and record. And, and so she finally got the whole thing finished, and I just finished mixing it for her. And it, it just came out two weeks ago. Okay, if you're, if you're tracking a capital, where do you tend to mix? I like to mix at capital. Okay. Yeah, I like to mix. I like... I like to mix in Studio A, believe it or not, which right. is the big room. Right. But C is a, a room that I do most of my mixing in. It's a little cheaper, uh, and if they have people in the studio in A, I can't mix it. Right. So. And is there, okay, how hard is it to get time these days? Uh, it varies. Sometimes you're, you're trying to squeeze things in. Other times, there's plenty of time. I always leave it up to Paula 
Salvador. Yeah, Cabin. of course. Or the she's other night. the best. And right. She, she, you know, she knows my schedule. And, and it all works figure, out. Yeah, we figure it out. Okay. So um, what is your special sauce? What makes, what is it that you do to the degree you want to reveal that makes your, makes you head and shoulders above the average oh. person? Well, I don't know. How, you know, that's a tough question for me to answer. Somebody else who should answer that. Um, but the fact that I love what I do so much, my father worked. He never took a day off in his life, and he worked hard all his life, and 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 he did the best he could. And that's what I want to do. Every day I go in, I want to do the best I can possibly do for the artist, make that artist happy. Hopefully you make a hit with them, but if not, a great record, and that's equally as important sometimes. And there are a lot of albums out there that people have never heard of. You know, Willis Allen, Allen Ramsey. I can't believe you cut that. Well, there you, you know, go. That is a legendary but, record. Till right. we hit the digital There are so many like that, right. you know, that are just, and that, that are great records that people don't know about. Right. So were your parents proud of your work? <sighs> I, I yeah, my mom was for sure. My father was uh, tough when it comes to that. Uh, and and I often say now, I wish my dad could see me now. You know, I, it'd be uh, maybe a whole different thing. Um, I I think my dad felt that because his brother helped me so much, uh, that it made it easier for me to. Something like that. Yeah. You know, dads are tough. And how long, when did he pass away? He passed away, oh my God. Uh, he was 78 years old, about 25 years ago. Okay, so he saw a lot of your success. Oh, yeah, yeah. And I, when I was a producer at RCA, yeah, I would take him to Martoni's, he and right. my mom. Yeah, and... Uh, you know, they'd have dinner with the artist and stuff. Yeah, that. And he never, he never really. No. No, and I would always, I, and I know, you know, they were living on retirement, so so I always slip my mother a hundred dollar bill, you know. And when when my father passed away, and and my uh, my sister went over to help out, she opened the refrigerator door, the the door drawer on the bottom. And it was full with $100 bills that I had given my mother. She just took them and threw them in. Wow. <laughs> so, you know, this is a business where a lot of people can't work anymore in the last 20 years. Yeah. You were, I mean, try, just trying to schedule, say you're tracking and then you're mixing. Yeah. You know, what is the secret to your ability to continue to work? I think the fact that I love it so much and I enjoy it so much. And, you know, when I go on, I never think I'm making a living doing this. I think I'm in. I'm doing something. People are going to enjoy this. It brings a lot of happiness music to people. Um, yeah, you know, I, I, I don't know. I, I, certain artists are tough, and you know, when you're going in, that it's not going to be a walk in the park. But other artists are, you know, just so much fun to be in the studio with. Um, Dylan was was a ball. Okay, that's not his reputation. So no, why was I know it. it. Well, why was he a ball? He was great because he was doing stuff that he was doing all these old chestnuts. Well, this is all recent stuff you yes, worked with him yes. on. Yes, yes, fifty-two songs. Right, I triplicate. I think it was. Called. Yeah, well, that's the last one. Well, right. I did two before that. Right. Okay. When was the first time you worked with Dylan? 
first time I worked with him was uh, Strangers in the Night or Shadows in the Night. Right. It's called. Yeah, he they called me, the manager. Right. And um, they had this time, and I couldn't do it. And I said, oh, well, that's too Bob wanted to work with you. I said, I'm sorry, I'm, I'm booked. So I hung up the phone, and I said to my wife, damn, I really would have liked to have done that with, with Bob. Next morning, they called me. Bob wants you. When are you available? So they worked around me, which I thought was great. And now I've done 52 songs with him, actually 53. And how long does it take to cut a Dylan track? We we were doing one song every three hours. And what would happen would, the first couple hours, it would be Dylan going over the song, get the meaning of the song and and listen to the way Frank did it or whatever and, and try to get, you know, his special interpretation. And then we would go in and cut the track and two or three takes and we'd have it. So we would go from three to six, and then we'd take a two-hour break for dinner, and then we'd go to eight to maybe 11 and get another song. So we were getting two a day. And where were you cutting this? At the Capitol and Studio okay. B. And then uh, any special tricks you used on his vocals to enhance those? Yeah, we did. We we used a great mic on his vocals, um, uh, the uh, Frank Sinatra mic that is just amazing mic and then i i put another mic um in an omni position uh, two feet maybe away from the first mic and to capture some of the ambience in the room and so forth and he when he heard the first playback he said al my voice hasn't sounded this good in 40 years <laughs> Yeah. And does he talk to you? Yes, he does. Because he he's famous for not talking to people. No, no, he does. I tuned one thing, and uh, and as it went by, he heard it, and he looked at me and said, what's that? I said, well, you were a little under. We No. <laughs> he, he made me put it back. Okay. Yeah. And what about, you know, staying on that, you know, starting in the 70s, whatever, the era of comped vocals. What do you think of that? <sighs> Well, yeah, <laughs> the reason I, I mean, it, it works. Obviously, it works, you know, with with, uh, with Barbara. There's a lot of comping right. of vocals, even comping of breaths. Really? Know? Yeah, right. Yeah, she'll say, you know, I love that breath. Two verses back, can we put that here? So, yeah, sure, boom, pop it in. And but do you do you think you I mean forget not making it specifically about Barbara? Does it eliminate a little bit of the soul and the feel when you comp all that stuff? Well, I think so. Yeah, I do. I do think a little bit when you hear you know, change is going to come, the Sam Cooke thing, or sitting on the dock of the bay, those kind of things. Those are not comp vocals. Those are, you know, and even with Barbara, there's I mean, there's some. She came in one day. We were working. Uh, David Foster was doing Back to Broadway, and um, and she was not feeling well. She, you know, she first time down, second time down, she just killed it. Oh, really? It was like, you know, but they they, they, they people like Barbara just they rise to the occasion. I mean, she is so meticulous about things. You know, it's it's never going to get out. 
if she doesn't like it. Right. So, and so anybody you haven't worked with who's still alive that you would like to work with? Yeah, you know, that comes up a lot. Uh, yeah, I'd love to do a record with Sade. Oh, really? Yeah. This came up. I was talking to uh, Desmond Child the other day. Right. And he was talking about what a perfect career she has because she's unique, but she only makes a record like every eight years. I know, I know. And I get, I put it out there a few times. You know, if she's available and wants wants me, I'm available. And uh, who, who does she use? I don't know. I don't know. Okay, anybody else? Hmm. That's the top of the list. I've, I, yeah, I've hit everybody. <laughs> I did. don't know who's out there that I that you know. Right. Okay. Ah, this has been fantastic. I think we covered it. Thanks so much for coming on the podcast. You're kidding. Is that it? We're done? Yes. Wow. (laughs) Unless there's something specific that we haven't covered. No, no, no. Okay. You've been wonderful. Till next time, this is Bob Lefson. Welcome to 500 Greatest Songs, a podcast based on Rolling Stone's hugely popular, influential, and sometimes controversial list. I'm Brittany Spanos. And I'm Rob Sheffield. We're here to shed light on the greatest songs ever made and discover what makes them so great. From classics like Fleetwood Mac's Dreams to The Ronettes' Be My Baby, and modern day classics like The Killer's Mr. Brightside. Listen to Rolling Stone's 500 Greatest Songs on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. I'm Saleya Mosin, and I've covered economic policy for years and reported on how it impacts people across the United States. In 2016, I saw how voters were leaning towards Trump and how so many Americans felt misunderstood by Washington. So I started The Big Take D.C. We dig into how money, politics and power shape government and the consequences for voters. With new episodes every Thursday, you can listen to The Big Take D.C. on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts or wherever you get your podcasts. The Big Take from Bloomberg News brings you what's shaping the world's economies with the smartest and best-informed business reporters around the world. We cover the stories behind what's moving money in markets and help you understand what's happening, what it means, and why it matters every afternoon. I'm Sarah Holder. I'm Saleh Mosin, And I'm David Gura. Listen to The Big Take on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts.